Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. You're listening to Superwomen with Rebecca Minkoff. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to remind you about the giveaway we're doing for Reshma Sujani's new book, Brave Not Perfect. This book is inspired by her popular TED Talk and shows us how to break free from the trap of perfection and rewire ourselves for bravery. We are giving away five copies. This is how it's going to work. Take a screenshot showing that you've downloaded, rated, and reviewed Superwomen with Rebecca Minkoff. Put it on your story. Tag me. I'll be going through it as they come in and picking out a couple of lucky winners. So get cracking. Today, I'm going to be talking with Sally Krawcheck, the co-founder of Elevest. If money is a subject that scares you or you're intimidated by or you're not quite sure how you should approach it, this is definitely a must listen. Take a listen. So I wanted to start with a confession. When I look at a spreadsheet, my eyes go cross-eyed. A lot of women aren't familiar with the language, much less the concepts of finance and investing. And so I'm wondering as a woman, you know, you've excelled in this area. How do we take that first step to to something that's so intimidating to a lot of women? Well, I, you know, I think we talk about it. Um, we are taught from when we're little girls that math is not for us and that math is hard and spreadsheets are for the guys. Um, and we're really discouraged from talking about money as a society. You know, daddy, daddy, how much money do you make? Honey, don't worry about that. You know, magazines that we read as teenagers and young women tend to infantilize us when it comes to money. What's your money type? Are you a Miranda or a Carrie? Um, And and so we're just taught this isn't for us. We talk about sex with our girlfriends, but and that's perfectly acceptable. But talking about money is considered tacky and unattractive. Um, And as a result, you know, it it leaves us with a sense of money is is not being the area in which we should operate. It leaves us, uh, you know, at loose ends when it comes to asking for a raise. If you're not allowed to talk about money with your girlfriends, how much do you ask for? You don't know. Um, And, of course, the money industries, Wall Street, where I work, Silicon Valley, uh, tend to be 85, 90, 95% men. So in every way, if the guys... A hundred years ago had said, how are we going to keep the women from having as much money as we do and therefore having as much power as we do? They would have done this, uh, which is let's, let's make money just for guys and teach young women and uh, girls that money is tacky. Talking about money is tacky and unattractive. So I say let's start talking about it and let's make sure our girls are taking their math classes uh, and let's invest through some of those money myths. And you also have called yourself a financial feminist. <laughs> yeah. What, is this, <laughs> what does this mean to you? Well, to me, being a financial feminist is uh, being in financial control, taking care of yourself, asking for that raise, investing that money, um, and then if we so choose, using the power that we build up from doing it to help other women and to advance other women, whether that's our daughters, and we do it by showing them we're in financial control. It's not what we tell them, it's what we show them, you know, or whether it's investing in other women. Um, as one can do through my company, Elevest. One of the things we do is invest 
in companies that advance women or getting loans to other women or buying from women-owned companies, um, all of which might seem a little, mm, I don't know, that feels a little weird, except today we're investing in a gender every day when we invest. We are buying from a gender every day when we invest, and if we're not doing it thoughtfully and intentionally, we're investing almost 100% in men, and we tend to be buying from men. And so, you know, the concept of investing in a gender is not a weird one. It's just one we don't often think about. And we are all investing in and typically buying from and typically spending our money with and on a gender. And if we're not doing it intentionally and thoughtfully, that gender tends to be men. Crazy. So one of the things that um, I wanted to talk with you is you rose through investment banking on Wall Street. You worked at Solomon Brothers, Merrill Lynch, Bank of America. And after increasing your division's net income by over 50% um, mm-hmm. at Citigroup, the position was eliminated. <laughs> How does that happen? <laughs> you have to try really hard, Rebecca. You have to try really hard. Look really, really hard I to have <laughs> good business results and still get yourself fired. Okay? <laughs> uh, what you didn't actually note is that I didn't just get fired publicly once running Merrill Lynch. Um, I got fired publicly twice. I also was fired when I was running Smith Barney. So I have had the privilege of running the two largest, at the time, the two largest wealth management businesses in the, in the industry and was fired from both of them. Um, you know, and it was a little bit because I went against the grain. You know, the first time was during the financial crisis. I was the only senior executive to have reimbursed client funds. Um, I did it not because the market went down. I did it because there were products we had missold to our clients. And the ethical individual in me said, if we did wrong, rather than trying to fight in court, let's just mess up and return some money and move on. Um, and the business person in me said it too, because why waste all the time fighting a case that, you know, ultimately should, we should lose. Uh, but my boss wasn't crazy about it. And so he fired me in the second go round. You know, my boss, uh, despite, as you mentioned, the business results being really, I mean, I'd say good, but I think great. Um, he, he really just wanted his own team around and then wanted to reorg in order to have it. So, you know, it happens. Um, and it happens to, to people who don't have great business results. And sometimes, sometimes it happens to people who do have great business results. And sometimes it happens because of gender issues. And um, while I wouldn't say my issues were 100% gender issues, there was certainly some flavor of that running through it. There's no doubt about it. Totally. And you had to deal a lot with that, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, coming up on Wall Street in those, you know, in the 80s, 90s. Did you have male support? And what did that look like? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, in fact, it's funny because some people sometimes say, well, you know, on Wall Street, did being a woman help or hurt you? And the answer is yes. And there were absolutely times when you were just, I was just discriminated against. And in, in sort of nasty ways and mean ways and misogynistic get out of here ways, there were also times when I, I was an advantage um, where particularly during my research days, if my research was good and could help make people money, you know, nobody was like, oh, I don't, that research is good, but I'm not going to talk to her because she's a woman. I mean, it, somehow the, the gender got stripped away and it, the gender made me easier to remember, right? Oh, there are 20 people covering this industry. One of them is a female. You can bet your bottom dollar if my work was good, they'd remember it. And, and I was mentored by a number of, of really successful men. And by the way, it had to be men because there were no senior women to me in those days um, who really just gave me the tools and the support and, and said, run. Um, and some were folks you would suspect it would be, and others were 
you know, reformed misogynists, quite frankly. <laughs> um, but, but, and, and they were really the ticket to success or failure. Um, when I had mentors, I did very well. And when I was left on my own in a highly, highly male industry, I got fired. So cut to many years later, you started the Elevate Network and Elvest. Mm-hmm. Will you tell me a little bit about what each one of them does? Yeah, sure. Well, the names are confusing because they're so similar. What they have in common, in addition to names that are similar, is they're both committed to advancing women. And they're both committed, quite frankly, to getting more money into the hands of women because the smartest thing you can do to improve a society or the economy is get more money to women. It's a win-win-win. So Elevate Network is now a tens of thousands, actually more than 100,000 strong professional women's network. Um, what, what does a network have to do with getting more money to women? Well, research has shown that networking is the number one unwritten rule of success in business. Men tend to network sooner and more effectively than women do. And your next business connection is more likely to come from a loose connection than someone who knows you really well, because the person who knows you really well, you and them know, know the same thing. Whereas you and I don't know each other very well, but now that we know each other, we operate in very different worlds, Rebecca. So, you know, I'm, I could make a world of introductions to you who you would know, and that could be very successful for you. So that's the Elevate Network. Elevest is an investing platform for women. Oh, women don't need their own investing platform. People told me for years, and even I told myself, Money is gender neutral. Hmm. But what I found a few years ago is men were investing to a greater degree than women were. Uh, Women were keeping 70% plus of their money in cash. It's costing the women who listen to your podcast a million dollars or more in some instances over the course of their lives. And what we found is no surprise when you step back, an industry, my old industry, that's 85, 90, 95% men, guess what? does a better job for men than women. Um, And that women were, one, seeing the wall of of older male faces in the investing industry and staying away. But two, those older male faces had built an industry that made more sense to them than makes sense to women, such as investing being a sport. Watch CNBC. It feels like ESPN. Investing being about outperforming, picking a winner, beating the market, um, and in fact, the industry symbol, as you know, down on Wall Street is a bull. So it's a phallic symbol. And so this industry, picking mutual funds, ETFs, trying to outperform, just appealed more to men, whereas women, when we invest, we're much more about selecting a goal. I'd love that house in five years. Um, I'd love to start my business in three years. I'd love to retire well um, at you know 90% of my pre-retirement income. We are motivated to invest for those reasons, not to win. And the industry, the hundreds of thousands of individuals in the industry, I got to tell you, completely miss this. And women are under investing. Wow. I never even thought about it like that. That's incredible. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. When you started Elevest, I'd love to hear any challenges. Clearly, you have an incredibly successful career and then your own company, but often we don't talk about the challenges or share them. <laughs> Maybe you do all the time, but I'd love for our listeners specifically, give me give me a good nugget. <laughs> there are so many challenges. And in fact, Rebecca, I say that, you know, running Elevest and starting Elevest is harder than running Merrill Lynch. Um, and I really, really believe that because while you know, things were very complex and complicated when I was running Merrill, frankly, there was cash flow. And I knew that, you know, if we messed today up, guess what? We were still earning money. Whereas, in a startup, 
every day you're losing, you know, at the beginning, you're losing money. And so if you make a mistake, it's almost like a triple, you know, you compound it, right? Because you made the mistake, which loses your money, and you lost the day to be doing something to make money, so you're losing. I mean, just, and you're probably always two or three mistakes away from complete failure. It, I mean, even if that few a number of mistakes. So the pressure on it is tremendous. The pressure of having an idea that everybody else, almost by definition, thinks is a stupid idea is tremendous. Um, because either, oh, you shouldn't start that. There are already 20 of them. Well, mine's different, you know. Or in my case, when I started Elevest, I, I don't forget the female reporters who, this is a dumb idea. Other people have tried it. Everybody's failed. Therefore, Sally will fail. And by the way, the real issue is not the gender investing gap. It's the gender pay gap. Like, you are such an idiot. Um, <laughs> like, seriously, oh, good, good idea. Let's all not solve the gender investing gap until we solve uh, the other one. Right. And so the skepticism um, was, was something. And then I'll tell you the truth is if you are a female and you're raising money, venture capital money, which not all companies do, only 1% of companies raise venture capital, but geez, is that hard? You know, again, you go into these venture capital firms that you know where the partners are ninety five percent male, and you are working. You know, if you have a female targeted business, you're not speaking the same language as ninety five percent of the people typically in the room. Um, and so, talk to any successful female venture capitalist, and they'll talk about how raising money was about the most difficult thing they did. Um, because those gender expectations are still there. In fact, my little story, you know, when I was raising money the last round, um, I met with a group of venture capitalists, and the, the senior guy just kept telling me how I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm like, well, you may have a good point there. They just I didn't know what I was doing about social following. I'm like, yeah, we have two and a half million followers, but tell me more. And how our cost of, we didn't know anything about the cost of acquisition. I'm like, oh, it's a of the industries that tell me more. And then Rebecca, when I started to tell him we were going to hire financial advisors and he told me I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm like, dude, I ran Merrill and Smith Barney. I know more about this than like anybody on the planet. <laughs> At that point, I'm like, gee, I'm beginning to think there's a gender thing here. I'm beginning to think maybe he's underestimating me because I'm a woman. <laughs> Crazy. That was the moment. That was where I'm like, how do, how do I slip in that I've run more financial advisors than anybody in the universe. How do I get that in the conversation? By the way, I already told him, and it's on my resume, right? But he still thinks he knows more than I do. Crazy. So one question I wanted to ask you was last year, female founders only got 2% of all venture capital funding. How do we get women to be able to find and get more access to these resources? Yeah. So, so back up, right? So mo- most companies just don't need venture capital funding. You know, they don't need that amount of money. And so if you're starting your business, thinking about other sources of capital, um, and those can be, you know, your bank account, friends and family, you know, going to increasingly these crowdfunding sources such as Indiegogo, et cetera, um, and raising money on them. You know, it's interesting in these crowd funding um, sites, women actually outperform men on them. Somehow it takes some of these issues away that we've been dealing with. Um, and another great source of capital, by the way, is revenue. If you can uh, you know, start selling your product earlier in the cycle, you earn revenue. Revenue is essentially free capital, right? You don't have to give up ownership when you have revenue. So those are ways you can do it. If 
you are going to need enough money um, that you need to go the, the seed funding route, the angel investing route, the venture capital route. You know, look, what I would say is sometimes it doesn't hurt to have a male co-founder. We love males. We love diversity. We love bringing the guys in. And, you know, you up your chances by having um, an individual who can speak the language of the vast majority of the venture capital firms. And so, actually, when I founded Elevest, uh, my co-founder is a male, not because, it really, frankly, I thought about it for raising money, but because I have a finance background and I needed somebody with more of a tech background and a, a, an entrepreneur who'd been there and done that. And so, this gentleman um, is, is someone who fit that bill. Um, though, as a company, by the way, we are close to two-thirds women and 40% people of color. But um, I've heard women talk about, you know, a secret weapon is bring someone who, who speaks the language. Uh, you mentioned earlier that, you know, most women will keep their money in cash because mm-hmm. uh, it's intimidating to invest. So for people taking that first step of where do I invest and how and what if I lose it? All those fears that I think probably mm-hmm. you know originally stopped me from investing. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of those easy, you know, things one can do to yeah. to take yeah. that first step? Well, you know, I'm you know, of course, I'm going to say you should invest with Alabaster. Of I'm course. Obviously, very biased. <laughs> One of the things we did at Elevest that was an important decision for us before we ever launched is we have no investing minimum. And that was important to me, that people, women in particular, could invest from their first dollar or their first penny, quite frankly. And that what we do at Elevest is we don't put you in individual stocks. We certainly don't put you in cryptocurrency. As a fiduciary, a fiduciary means we must put your interest ahead of our own. Uh, And you should always ask, the company you're looking to work with and invest with, are you a fiduciary? But as a fiduciary, we will provide you with a diversified investment portfolio. We won't invest you in just one stock or just one asset class, but a diversified set of investments. That is a means to reduce risk for you so that if the the equity market is not doing well, you'll often see that the bond market, you know, will not do as poorly or will do well during the same period of time. So, and you want to keep your costs low. Um, because you can't predict what the market's going to do, but you can predict what your costs are going to be. Um, and you want to start off, if you're younger and your goal is further out, you're going to want to have more risk in order to give yourself the opportunity to earn um, a higher return. And if you're a little more mature and your risk and your goal is sooner, you're going to want to have less risk. And by risk, I mean you want to have more equities or less equities that you know can have a bit more risk and provide you with a bit more return. So fiduciary, low-cost, diversified investment portfolio, a little more risk when you're younger, a little less risk later, and then very importantly, make it a habit. You know, the mistake, the, the mental mistake I see so many of us make is, oh, you know, the market feels high to me, or I'm a little nervous because what if we become going into a recession? First of all, you have no idea. You have no idea. And you have no idea because I promise you the professionals have no idea. All those people who pontificate on TV have no idea. And the research is clear that nobody effectively, quote, unquote, market time. But a way to get yourself over that is to make investing a habit. And so you want to take some percent out of every paycheck and invest it in this diversified investment portfolio. Maybe it's 1%. That's all you can afford. Maybe it's 2%. You know, experts say that, you know, with retirement savings and investing, you might want, you want to get it up to 15 or even 20% of your take-home pay, but start where you can. And the great thing about making investing a habit is that if you actually are a market timing genius and dang, you invested yesterday and the market went down today, 
Well, guess what? You're investing with the next paycheck. So all of a sudden, you're buying the stocks on sale, maybe next week, maybe the week after, maybe the week after, and then it evens out over time. So you're not one and done. So here's the secret, Rebecca. Here is the secret. We did a, a survey at LMS, and do you know the number one driver of confidence in women in achieving their future goals? Investing. That's exactly right. It's not how much money they make at work. It's not the relationship with their spouse. It's not, it is, and it's not even if they have invested. It is the act of investing, the act of control. Um, and so you're going to see, I believe, if you do this, you're going to start to have a spring to your step and you're going to be like, you know what? You know, I'm a, I'm a badass woman. Totally. And yeah, I've also seen that, um, you know, I think we're seeing that more women are earning more than their husbands, which is mm-hmm. a new dynamic and makes for interesting, deep-seated feelings mm-hmm. <laughs> coming to the surface. Mm-hmm. How do you feel or how do you tell women who either ex- are experiencing this or are scared for that you know, mm. eventuality mm-hmm. to not have it affect their marriage or their or their partnership. Well, that's a little bit of a tough one, isn't it? <laughs> because I actually spent the past couple of weeks that shows that when women earn more than their spouses do that in a traditional heterosexual relationship, that the man lies about it and says he earns more, and the woman lies about it too and says she earns less. Wow. Um, and so we're still in Ozzy and Harriet world in some ways. Um, and look, I had this. You know, my first marriage, I was not yet earning more than my first husband, but I was going to business school and he wasn't. And so it was sort of becoming clear what was going to happen. And, you know, damn if he didn't have an affair with a friend of mine. You know, and you you and I both know what's going on there, right? That was his way of sort of reasserting his masculinity. Right. So happily, I got a better second husband who, you know, was sort of like, oh, if you're earning more money than me, that's awesome. That's like amazing. That's the most fantastic thing around. And so I think some of it is, you know, talking, you know, if you're in one of those marriages already, you sort of got a little bit of an issue and try to spend some time and work through it. If you're beginning a relationship like that, your relationship at the beginning, that's when, that's why we have to talk about money. Too many couples, you know, you have sex on the third date. By the way, Rebecca, I have no idea what people, what dates people have sex on anymore. I've been married for so long. Me too. Still, you, get, you get the point. <laughs> like, you get the point. But, you know, you don't talk about money till after you're married. That's crazy. That's crazy. And so finding the opportunity to, in those, you know, whether it's the third date or the fifth date or the tenth date or the second date or whatever it is, as you begin to talk about your hopes and dreams, bringing in your values around money and having those conversations, you know, you'll begin to see if you're with someone who will be intimidated by your awesomeness or whether you will be with someone who celebrates your awesomeness. And I think we'd all rather have someone who celebrates our awesomeness. 100%. Um, I'm curious to know who are some other females who are kicking ass that inspire you? You know, I, I love these women entrepreneurs, you know, whether it's Julie Raymond at The Real Real or Jim Hyman at Rent the Runway, you know, Katrina Lake, who had that baby. And when she rang the uh, bell of the New York Stock Exchange, when uh, Stitch Fix, which is a company I love, went public. You know, these women, particularly the women on the West Coast, you know, I think my we can learn something on the East Coast from them because they get together, they advise each other, they pump each other up, they talk each other up. Um, they, there really is a, a sisterhood amongst them, um, probably, probably driven by the fact that they know that if one of them is successful, it not only doesn't keep another from being successful, it can help them be successful. What do I mean by that? 
so many venture capitalists talk about pattern recognition. And so if they're funding one kick-ass, you know, female with a, you know, very female-oriented idea and it's successful, then they'll do it again and again and again, right? They, they all talk about pattern recognition. Whereas, interestingly, in the more traditional East Coast, where women work in corporate America, what we have unfortunately learned is that if there are two seats, of, you know, seats at the table for females, which is about what it usually is, we have implicitly learned that we are competing for that seat with other women. So what we need to do is we need to sort of break through this belief that we've all had that only two of us can be successful um, and more actively work within corporate America to talk each other up, to promote each other, to hire each other, to give business to each other. Not, again, not, you know, to keep the guys out, but really as a means of bringing the women in. And I think that's been a big difference, which is entrepreneurial world, women have believed more of them can be successful corporate world, we've seen success as scarcity as opposed to abundance, as Abby Wambach talks about. Right. So one thing I like to ask everybody as we wind down is something we'd be surprised to know about you. I'll share first so that can be a thought starter if you want. When I was dating this awful human, when I was, I think, 25, he said, open up a little account, put in $20, whatever you can afford. And I think mm-hmm. it was $5, maybe. Mm. Uh, a week is what I could afford because my salary was $23,000 a year living in mm-hmm. New York City. We didn't, me didn't make it, thank God. I didn't end up with him. But, you know, I sort of, as I was starting to make more and be more successful, would do $100 a week or more. Mm. And then one day I just said, I'm going to delete and erase the password and check back on this account in a couple ah. of years. And that's how I got my house in Quag. Oh, my God. <laughs> so definitely worth it to invest. Yep. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Well, okay, so I've got a Quag House story, too. How about this? <laughs> okay. So um, my home in Quag, so when I was working at Citigroup and I was running Smith Barney, we had a terrible, terrible rule for the senior executives of the company, which is that we weren't allowed to sell our stock in Citigroup. Um, it was sort of what we call the blood oath and the, the concept, which is an understandable one, is we, we were running the business and we needed to be all in. Um, and you could go, though, every once in a while and get sort of special okay to sell your stock and do something with it. Um, and so in 2004, um, I went to my boss and said, I would like to sell some of my stock because I'd like to buy a home for my family in Quag. And I got the okay to do that. And so we bought Quag, which we have just loved as a family uh, since then. And, you know, I can't. Even count how much in, mo- in monetary terms how much joy it's given us, um, and in monetary terms, it's actually appreciated over time. What has happened to Citigroup stock? Citigroup stock, the rest of which I held, um, went from into the fifties, and then in the financial crisis, which less than one, less than one. And so when I look at wow. you know what I what I could have done with the money, what I did with the money, buying this home was actually the smartest financial decision I ever made. And the great thing about it, Rebecca, is we actually get to live in it, right? As opposed to, you know, nobody loves stocks and bonds more than me, uh, but for some portion of your money, loving it and enjoying it and living in it is sometimes worth more than just looking at, you know, the, the checking account balance. I love it. And then my last question for you and part of why I wanted to do this podcast was to have our listeners come away with something actionable they can do today 
mm-hmm. um, that can change the course of, you know, hopefully something further yeah. down the line? Well, you know, I, as you know, I'm all about investing. I'm all about money is power. I'm all about working to get more money to women. Um, I'm all about the messaging that ladies, you know, let's be honest, until we are financially equal with men, we are not fully equal with men. That, that money can be the means to the new career and the new life and leaving the job you hate and leaving the relationship that no longer works for you. And so I certainly want everybody to begin to invest today if they're not. If, however, you're feeling that like, oh, I don't know, then go to Elevest, you know, or type into your browser, Elevest um, and the Go-Getter's Guide to Investing. And it's going to tell you the five things you need to know in investing. I've found Rebecca with women, we often think we need to know everything, right? We, we've got to get an A in everything. We need to have this 700-page book before we begin investing, and it costs us a lot. We don't. We don't. There's some fundamentals we need to know, and you can find them over at Elvis for totally free that can give you the, the, the concepts you need to know and therefore the confidence to begin to invest. I love it. Sally Krawcheck, thank you so, so, so much for being with me. Rebecca, it's been my pleasure. I've loved being here. Thanks for having me. That was Sally Krawcheck. And what I would love for you to do today is bring up the subject of money with someone who it makes you uncomfortable to talk about and then see what happens. I dare you. Please don't forget to download, rate, and review us. I love hearing from you. I love seeing your emails in my inbox. It makes my day, literally. I feel like I get paid when I open my email and I see your love. So keep sending it to me. This week, I actually got someone talking to me, but it was a real letter stamped and everything. It's from Liz Liggett, and she is an art advisor in Des Moines, Iowa. And she says, this year, I'm writing a note to a woman who inspires me each week. And this week, it's you. I'm a huge fan of your podcast and your clothing, of course. My favorite leather jacket is by you. Your podcast has been a huge source of inspiration to me personally and professionally. Your candor about owning and running a business and about motherhood has been just what I needed. I own a business and have a seven-month-old, and your perspective has been so helpful. Thank you. Kudos and keep going, Liz. Liz, thank you. You made my week. I love getting handwritten emails, typed emails, handwritten letters, you name it. I want to hear from you, so DM me, email me, write me a good old-fashioned letter, and tune in next week. 